Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Ephesians chapter 6, 6th chapter of Ephesians. We're down now to very close to the end of our series tonight and uh, next Wednesday night, and we'll finally end up the book of Ephesians after a little over, I think it's over two years of study. Tonight uh, in chapter 6, we're talking about spiritual warfare, and we've been speaking about this all the way since uh, before the first of the year, way back in November. We started talking about spiritual warfare. And what Paul does here in the sixth chapter is he uses these different pieces of armor that are worn by a Roman soldier, and he uses those as a metaphor for the weapons of Christian warfare, things that we really need to have in order to fight against the, just the myriad tactics of the devil as he uses them against God's people. In the sixth chapter here, we find there are six pieces of armor that Paul speaks of, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And each of these spiritual weapons represents some uh, aspect of, of the spiritual life, of a Christian's life, that has to be properly in order before we can enter into a spiritual conflict. So we have to have all of these weapons that he speaks of, but even when we have all of the weapons, we're not yet ready to fight. George Duffield had it right when he wrote in his hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. He said, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. Ye dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer, where duty calls or danger be never wanting there. No, no doubt that Duffield had in his mind this very text that we're reading in Ephesians chapter 6. So we need to put on each arm, piece of the armor, but as we do, just as Paul says here, each piece needs to be put on with prayer. So tonight we're going to discuss the necessity of prayer for Christian soldiers. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're looking in Ephesians chapter 6, and, and let's start at verse number 14. Uh, this is where Paul begins the list of these different pieces of armor. Verse number 14, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, and we do thank you for uh, everyone who's come this evening to hear your word. We ask you, Lord, that your richest blessings will be upon each one. Open your word to us tonight. Help us to really see the need of prayer for a Christian soldier. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago when I was preaching on the breastplate of righteousness, I made a comment that it's really great to have God's power. But God's power is really not enough. I mean, God's power is wonderful. We need that. But a Christian soldier also needs protection. A soldier uh, with power is a formidable fighting force. But unless he has some kind of protection, at some time or another, he will become vulnerable to the enemy. 
Well, I want to change the statement around just a little bit this evening, and I want to say that it's great to have protection. It's good to have protection, but if you have no power, then also you would be a useless soldier. And this, I think, is Paul's meaning in, in the verse that, verse that we're considering tonight. He tells us to put on each piece of this armor, and then he says in verse number 18, put all of these pieces on with prayer. And prayer is the means of our power with God. Prayer is the connection that we have with God whereby God's power is channeled into our lives. And so the success of prayer, or the success of the Christian life, rather, and the strength of the Christian life relies largely upon how often you are connected to God through prayer. I don't know of any better way to demonstrate that than as we think about Jesus and his need for prayer in his life. I mean, Jesus also depended upon prayer. And, of course, when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the Son of God. We're speaking of someone who had the power to to cast out devils. He was able to heal the blind. He was able to make the lame to walk. And Jesus could even speak a word. And he was able to calm the storms on the sea. But even Jesus, who was the very God-man, depended upon God in prayer. Often, Jesus would turn aside to pray... And we learn from the Scriptures that Jesus' prayers were so uncommon, there was something very special about the prayers of Jesus, so that when the disciples heard him pray and they saw him pray, they went to Jesus and they asked him, Lord, teach us also to pray. They saw something that was very uncommon in the way that Jesus prayed, and I think that what they were asking, Jesus, show us how to have power with God. Teach us how we can pray like you pray, so we can have God's power in our lives. So power from God comes for a Christian through prayer. And really, we can arm ourselves to the teeth with all these different weapons of warfare that Paul speaks of. And unless we have prayer, we're we're going to be useless. Prayer is the connection for all of this. Prayer is what makes all of these different things work. And so Paul finishes this section as he talks about the Christian armor, and he, he lists prayer as last on the list. Now, not because prayer is insignificant and not because prayer isn't needed, because certainly it is. You can have all of the Christian armaments that he speaks of, but he says, lastly, put each piece on with prayer because prayer is the thing that really lights it all up. Prayer is the thing that makes it all work. Last, uh, last month, I bought a, a new computer for my home office, and uh, I am so proud of my computer it has enough horsepower that I can launch a rocket to the moon. And, uh, I, I'm, I, you know, I ordered that computer from Dell, and, and I waited for that computer. I mean, I'm the kind of person, I'm not like Gary. Gary can get a new computer, and he can sit and look at the box for three or four days. I can't do that. I waited at the door looking for the UPS truck to come, and finally the day came that my new computer got here. So I started unloading everything from the box and set the CPU down on the floor, plugged in all of the speakers, got the, got the monitor hooked up, and, and uh, uh, plugged in the mouse and the keyboard, got it all ready to go, and I looked at it, and it was a beautiful sight. It was a pretty thing. But I hit the power button, and nothing happened. I mean, I, what's wrong? I mean, I got a brand-new computer from Dell. I pushed the power button, and nothing works. Well, I got to looking around, checking all the connection, trying to find out what's wrong, and I discovered, as you probably well guessed, I forgot to take the power cord out of the box. So I have to plug up the 
you know, that power cord to the machine, and when I stick that plug into the wall, now the computer springs to life, and I can fire rockets at Iraq if I want to. But it is a great thing. So this is the way it is with prayer. You can have everything in your life ready to go. You can have all of these weapons of warfare. You can be the great little soldier that puts everything in place just like it's supposed to be. But unless you have the power source, none of that will be to any avail. You have to be connected with God. And so that's what prayer does for you. Now, let me go just a step further. Maybe you're not a strong Christian soldier, and maybe you haven't yet put all of the pieces in place to use them And yet you can be the weakest soldier of all, and at any time, in any place, if you know God, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, any time, any place, any circumstance, you have the power of God at your disposal. All that you need to do is talk to God. Well, let's let's talk about this tonight. Uh, Verse number 18, if you'll notice, uh, look at it very closely because it kind of makes its own outline. So we're going to take verse number 18, and for most of the sermon, we'll use that verse as an outline for what Paul says about prayer. Notice, first of all, if you would, how many times that he uses the word all. Verse number 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So let's take that and see if we can outline it here. First of all, we look at the time of prayer. And here he says, always. He begins by saying always or praying always. I've had people ask me on several occasions, what does the Bible mean when it says to pray always? What what does it mean when it says pray without ceasing? Well, obviously, the the Bible couldn't be talking about uh, every moment of the day, day or night, that you spend time uh, somewhere in a formal position of prayer and you're mulling over and thinking over every single petition that you want to ask God about, that you've got the things running over and over in your mind, uh, minute after minute, hour after hour, all day long. Well, it couldn't mean that, because if it did, you wouldn't be able to get anything else done. You'd probably starve to death if you did that. Here in Brian Baptist, I, I'm sure that you would like the pastor to be a man of prayer, but when you come to church on Sunday, you do expect me to come out of my office and at least say hello to everybody, and perhaps even get up to preach a sermon. So we can't be talking about taking every waking moment and and literally being on our knees or being some posture of prayer and then talking to God in that way. So he's not really talking about that. Jesus didn't even do that. I mean, Jesus prayed, as we said. He prayed more than anyone. His disciples couldn't even keep up with Jesus when he prayed. Uh, I mean, Jesus, when, when he prayed, the disciples fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake as he was praying. So Jesus went about doing other things. So it can't mean that we spend every waking moment in prayer. But what I think it does mean is that we're always conscious of the connection that we have with God. I think it's what it means. Prayer uh, is to be a special awareness of God. It means that in every step we take, in every motive that we have, in every action that we perform, that we're thinking about God. Recently, I had a man in my office that I was witnessing to about salvation, and he was worried about uh, how he could overcome temptation. And so he asked me, he says, now once I have this relationship with Jesus Christ, then how do I use that to overcome temptation? And I said, you know, that's a great question. That's a really good question. How do you do that? And I said, when you know Jesus Christ, whenever you are tempted at any moment, at any time that the devil tempts you with something, you can go right then to God in prayer 
And I promise you that if you do that, the Holy Spirit will impress upon you exactly what you need to do. When you say, God, here's the temptation, here's the thing I'm going to do, what do you want me to do about that? God will always give you an answer for that. That's a promise. Now, Paul uh, uh, tells us about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says in verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. So when we take that verse and we apply it to Christian warfare, whenever the devil throws one of those fiery darts at you, whenever he comes at you with the temptation, you look right here and you have the promise of God that you can rely on. You do not have to enter into temptation. It's not a necessity. You don't have to do that. But what God has done, according to this verse, he has provided an exit door. He's provided a way for you to get out of it. That's his promise to you. And so whenever you're tempted with something, you're going to do something wrong, stop right then. Ask God about it. And God provides that exit door for you to get out of that temptation. Now, we definitely need formal times of prayer. Absolutely, we ought to do that. There ought to be times of of communication and concentrated communication with God. But when we pray, always remember this is the thing about it. You always have that connection with God, the always-on connection. You know, it's, it's kind of strange the way that our uh, examples and illustrations change over time. But back in, you know, a few years ago in the days of dial-up, we would say something like, well, if you want to get in touch with God, you just dial him up. God always answers. I like it better now. I've got Comcast cable that's faster than DSL, and the connection is always on. And that's the way it is with prayer. Now, let's go on here because he talks about another thing, and that's the types of prayer. And there are various types of prayer. He says, praying always with all prayer. If we go to Luke chapter 11, we'll notice there that when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he didn't say, well, well, here's the thing that you do. The first thing that you have to do if you're going to pray, put your hands together like this, bring them up here like this, close your eyes, kneel down, and then you begin to pray. Jesus never said that. Some of you that have been in my office and... Most of you probably haven't been there unless you're in trouble. But uh, if you've ever been in my office, I've got a picture there of, of Samuel and Benjamin, and they're sitting at a table, and they're praying. Now, you look at this picture, and here is Samuel. He has his head bowed on the table like he's really into this. And the Bible's sitting right there, and he's really concentrating on this prayer. Benjamin, however, is peeking at the camera while the picture's being taken. Now, if Jesus is here talking about a particular posture in prayer when he's talking about different kinds of prayer. Well, Samuel passes Jesus' test, but unfortunately Benjamin doesn't. But that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is not concentrating on a particular position of prayer. Sometimes he prayed standing, sometimes he was sitting, sometimes kneeling. And even if you think about as he was uh, giving the Lord's Supper, that back then when they ate, they reclined at the table. So there's no doubt that when he began to pray, he was probably laying on his side as he was praying. So we're not talking here about kneeling prayers, standing prayers, sitting prayers, things like that. But there are various types of prayer. There are prayers where you have these one-on-one talks with God. There are prayers where, as we call it, you know, maybe closet prayers, where you go in and it's just you and God alone, and you pray and you feel the presence of God begin to envelop you as you talk with him. Sometimes we have public prayer, just like we had tonight, and that's when someone gets up to lead, and 
And uh, they pray, and as they pray, you're following along silently with them. And then sometimes you may be the one that's leading in prayer, and people are following you. But there's all different kinds of prayer, some spoken out loud, some spoken in silence. There are prayers that are prayed to encourage people, prayers for spiritual things, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But there's various kinds of prayer. One of the things that I'm sure that God doesn't want us to do, he doesn't want us to have repetitious prayers. He doesn't want us to pray prescribed prayers. I like what one commentator said about this. He said he never did like a written prayer. He said he felt that those kinds of prayers were too formal and that they really weren't for the purpose of connecting with God or talking with God, that the real purpose was trying to impress people. So he says, I don't like written prayers. In many churches, they have a liturgy. And uh, a liturgy simply means a prescribed form of worship. And so by ritual and by repetition, uh, by formalized prayer, uh, people will begin uh, to, to pray. Roman Catholics, for instance, use chanting and they use response-type prayers. But actually, most of the time, those kinds of prayers have nothing at all to do with being in touch with God. It doesn't have anything to do with pleading with God and really not anything to do with worshiping God. It's ritual and it's rote, it's repetitious, and that's really not the kind of prayer that God wants us to use. God's not interested in that. But the type of prayer I think that God really wants to hear is where a sinner, a sinner recognizes who God is. I mean, just like the prayer of that publican who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the kind of prayer that God wants to hear. I mean, this is a prayer where you recognize who God is, You understand whose presence that you're in. You understand who God is, and you understand who you are. Then also, in in different types of prayers, I said a moment ago, there are different things that you ask for. Prayers always ought to have something to do with thanksgiving, uh, acknowledging what God has done for you, and thank Him for that. Prayers should include things, I believe, about God's holiness and about His righteousness. Uh, You should pray for yourself. You should pray for others. In fact, our text here says that we are to pray for the saints. And that doesn't mean pray for somebody who died and went to heaven. He's not talking about that. He's speaking about praying for for people that are in the same army that you're in. I mean, pray for other Christians is what he means. So you pray for people that are in your regiment, and we might say that's the people that are in your church. Pray for them. Then pray for Christians that are in the army serving around the world, missionaries that are in different places on foreign fields. Pray for them. Pray for Christians all over the world. That's a part of what we're supposed to pray for. Now, sometimes Christians will get mixed up about what to pray for, and they never pray for themselves because they think that prayers always ought to be for other people. And then you have those that get mixed up and pray only for themselves and never pray for anybody else. But when Paul says here, pray for all saints, of course that means you, and it means others as well. So pray for for all of these different people because you need strength and they need strength. And then as you uh, pray for yourself and you pray for others, what we ought to do is pray primarily for our spiritual needs. I think it's fine to pray for our physical needs. We ought to do that, and there are times that we need to. But primarily, I think prayer ought to be about spiritual things. And this is where we ask God for forgiveness. We talk to God about overcoming temptation in our lives. We want God to help us to be an example to people and be a witness to others. And so we pray on the spiritual things and we make those primary because you remember Jesus said, the Father in heaven already knows the things that you have need of. I mean, there's nothing wrong with praying about them, but when you pray for the spiritual things and you pray for righteousness and you pray for those types of things, 
I believe that God's going to add the other things that you need as well. Now, the third thing that we could look at here in, in this verse is the temperament of prayer. And prayer is to be insistent. In verse number 18, Paul says, All prayer in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance. One of the greatest teachings that we have about persistent prayer is found uh, when Jesus told the parable about a man who showed up one night and he needed some help from his neighbor. In Luke chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me, please. We're going to read this in just a moment. But uh, Jesus talks about persistent prayer. And this story is right after uh, Jesus gave his instructions about the model prayer. And we all know what that is. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the model prayer. Now, while you're looking up Luke chapter 11, let me also mention that Jesus never intended that that would be a liturgical prayer. He never intended for us to use that as a, as a means of penance so that someone would tell you, well, say so many Our Fathers and then you'll be forgiven. Jesus never intended for that prayer to be used that way. But after this prayer, he gives an example of being insistent. Look at verse number 5. And he said unto them, Each of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is in his journey, has come to me, and I have nothing to say him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Importunity means to be insistent. It means to urge and to keep on urging. And that's the way that God wants us to be in prayer. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that the reason that God answers your prayer is you keep on asking him, and in order to shut you up, he just gives you what you want. He's not speaking about that. He's talking about just being persistent, and God doesn't answer prayers, though, simply because we are persistent. But what he means here is don't be weary in asking. Don't give up asking. Don't become discouraged when, when you don't get the answer that you want right when you think that you ought to get it. Now, here he's saying that, uh, that a friend would come to his neighbor, and for at midnight, this friend would get up to help a stranded neighbor. And, he, and the point that he's trying to get across here, if a friend will do that for his neighbor, how much more will God do it for you when you're his child? He'll take care of the things that you need. He's willing to do it. Now, notice back in our text that Paul uses the word supplication. Supplication means to ask. But it really means more than just asking because it means to ask of someone who's in authority. You understand that the person you're asking for, from uh, has more authority than you have. And so when we supplicate God, we come to him and we recognize the authority. Many Christians are insistent in their prayers, but they become very angry because God doesn't answer when they want him to answer. And they don't get the specific answer they think they ought to have. So they become angry with God. But supplication means that we understand that God is in control of all things. God is absolutely sovereign. God is higher in authority than all. And in whatever way, whatever way that God decides to answer a prayer, it will always be the right way. He never does anything that's wrong, so he's always going to answer rightly. And for any Christian, that is really the secret of being able to accept everything that happens in your life. Even when bad things happen in your life as a Christian, you still understand that God does all things well. Now, maybe things don't happen the way that you want, 
But when you understand that God is sovereign and God is perfect, God is never going to make a mistake with his children. When Job lost his health and his wealth and his family, you remember his wife told him to curse God and die. In Job 2, verse 10, Job said to her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. So that is recognition that God does all things well. So he teaches us to be insistent when we pray, be persistent, be, uh, to persevere in prayer, persevere when you get the answer that you want and be happy for it, uh, stay right with God when you get the answer that you don't want, and stay with him as well when he's not ready to answer at all. Be persistent with the prayer and insistent. Now, number four is the taker of prayer. And the taker of prayer is the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. You've probably heard people talk about praying in the Spirit. And lots of times when people use that phrase, they really have no idea at all what it means to be praying in the Spirit. And so they've got some kind of an idea that to, be, to pray in the Spirit means that you are so in touch with God that you're able to speak in some otherworldly language, that you're able to speak in some unknown tongue as you talk with God so that nobody knows what you're saying but you and God. And I will tell you that if you pray that way, you don't know what you're saying and God doesn't know what you're saying either because that's not what it means to pray in the Spirit. So people, you know, they think that, well, this is talking about ecstatic prayer language. But praying in the Spirit means to be mutually with the Spirit, to be in the will of the Spirit. It means that you don't pray frivolously. Don't mean, it means that you don't pray repetitiously. There's not formalism in your prayer. But it's a prayer that goes along with the prescription that God gives for prayer. In the Bible, we have a definite prescription for prayer. And I think to pray properly, we have to follow the way that God says for us to do this. So prayer always agrees with God's instructions. One of the things that we're told to do is to ask in the name of Jesus Christ. We address our prayers to the Heavenly Father, and we ask them in the name of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we do that is because we have no right to come in the presence of God except on the basis of Christ's righteousness and his work. You don't know the reason why you can come to God except for what Christ did. And so when you pray, you pray in the name of Jesus. Never should a prayer be so generic that when you pray, somebody could listen to you, and they, what they hear is, insert your God here. And that's the way a lot of prayers are. Nobody ever talks about Jesus. Nobody talks about God the Father. But we're talking to some spirit in the sky somewhere, and you can just decide which God this prayer is for and plug your God in as you choose. That's not a prayer. That's not a prayer that God recognizes. The Bible tells us Jesus taught us to pray in his name. And so we pray to the Father, and we pray in the name of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit takes that prayer right into the presence of God. Not only does he do that, but the Bible teaches us that the Spirit helps our infirmities. He, he helps us to know what to pray for and how to pray as we should. I remember when I was a child growing up that uh, my father, as you've heard the story, was pastoring this small country church in Kentucky. And uh, this was when I was very young, and there were a lot of old farmers in the church. In fact, it was a farming community. And so we would have a week of prayer meetings before we'd have two weeks of revival. Every single night before revival, we would go to somebody's home and we would have a prayer meeting. 
These old farmers weren't theologians, and uh, they weren't really Bible scholars or anything like that. They're just people who love the Lord. And so they would gather in their homes, and the men would go one way, and the ladies would go another way, and, and those folks would just go, and they would pour out their hearts to God. And I remember as a child listening to that, most of the time I was, you know, I was like a lot of children, that the prayers of these old farmers would really get long. So most of the time I had my watch out and say, who's going to go longest tonight? And I'm, you know, watching the second hand go around there and counting the minutes, and I'm going to award a prize at the end to whoever said the longest prayer. But, you know, there was something about that because the, these people, they just seemed to have a heart for God, and you could really feel the presence of God there. And so you know what happened after a week of prayer meetings like that? The preacher comes, and, and he preaches, and the church is all prayed up. And as he preaches, the Holy Spirit begins to move. People start getting right with God. People started getting saved. And that's what the Holy Spirit does when you approach him with a proper kind of prayer. So when you talk about prayer, you're not talking about some kind of ecstatic language. And too many times in churches today, it's so superficial in the prayer. I mean, it really doesn't mean anything at all. There's emotionalism that's involved in it, and it has nothing at all to do with being connected with God. We're to pray in the prescribed way, the way the, the Scriptures tell us to. So praying in the Spirit doesn't mean your spirit. It means to pray in concert with the Holy Spirit and address those prayers to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, finally, let's look at one more thing, and that is the teacher in prayer. The teacher here is the apostle. And we have to go a little beyond verse number 18 to talk about this. But uh, Paul asked them to pray for him. Well, let's consider for just a moment who makes the request. Here is the apostle. Here's the one who's their teacher. We, we've spent, what is it? Uh, this is 95 sermons in Ephesians. And we've seen over and over and over again just the, just the marvelous things that Paul writes here. I mean, these are things that some of it is so deep that people have been arguing over this for centuries. They still haven't got it right, what all he's talking about. But here's the Apostle Paul, the teacher. Thousands of books have been written to explain the things that Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians. But you know what Paul says to these people? They aren't apostles. They're just average, ordinary Christians just like you and me. And he says to them, I need you to pray for me. Look at verse number 19. And for me, he says, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So as much as... Paul knew about Scripture as great as an apostle that he was. When he gave the Corinthians, or the, excuse me, Ephesians this advice here about praying and about spiritual warfare and all these things, he knew that he also had to put on all of these weapons of warfare, and he had to have prayer as well. And so he says, don't forget about me. When you pray, pray for me. And we want to notice here three things particularly that Paul asked them to pray for. The first one is ability. He says, that utterance may be given unto me. Now, notice here what he doesn't ask for. Paul is in prison as he writes the letter, but not once did he say, pray for me that I can get out of prison. We know from reading other places of Scripture that Paul was ill. In uh, the book of Corinthians, he tells us that he had a thorn in the flesh, and he, had, he prayed about that to God, and God didn't see fit to remove it from him. But we don't see here that Paul says, pray, pray for my health. I mean, I'm, I'm sick. I want to get rid of this thing that I've got. Help me out with that. Pray about that. 
He doesn't pray for healing. But he wanted them to pray for him that he in turn might be a blessing to other people. So here is a man who has all the problems that he has, all the weight and the care of all the churches, as he also tells us. And now he says, pray that I can be a blessing to other people. So what he says is, pray that I might have utterance, that I might have the ability to preach to others, that I might be effective in my preaching. You remember in our study in 1 Corinthians that Paul had that speech problem? When you read Paul, read the things that he wrote, you think, well, well, what a logical brain that Paul had. What an intelligent person Paul is. How well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures is Paul. Astounding knowledge. And right along with that, you're thinking at the same time, he must have been a very articulate person. He must have been very well-spoken. But in fact, that wasn't the truth. He wasn't at all. His speech was poor. And perhaps Paul thought that his inability to speak well, that that would somehow hinder the cause of Christ. Paul was not an orator. Apollos, he was the golden-throated orator, but not Paul. Now, here is Paul, and, and he's up against all of these great orators of, of Rome and Greece. Um, he comes to the people, and his speech is contemptible, as he says. Or what I have to say, or the manner in which I speak, it's not pleasing to the ear. So here's a problem for Paul. He's competing against great orators, and Paul is not an orator. He comes with a strange message, and he speaks poorly. So what chance does he have of winning people to Christ? You know, in most Baptist churches today, they'd say fat chance because they think salvation is by chance. So if it's not in the presentation, uh, if you don't have that right, if you, if you don't give a tricky invitation, if you're not able to convince people by things that you do and little maneuvers and, and tricks that you're not going to get people saved, Paul was never worried about that because he didn't do the saving. There was no chance involved in any of this. It's God who does the saving. So here's what we really need to understand. You know, salvation and in preaching messages and, and imploring and, and encouraging people to come to Christ, this is not skeet shooting. It's not tossing bottle rings around the necks of bottles at the fair. God's in control of salvation. So when Paul's praying for utterance and for, for being able to speech, uh, speak well, I, I don't think he's worried about that, you know, he, he's not going to be able to speak well enough that people will get saved. That, that's not really his problem. But he is very much conscious of the way people are and the way people think, and, and he thought that may perhaps some way that his inabilities would somehow hinder the gospel of Christ in one way or another. But I don't think he's ever worried about chances of people being saved. Despite all of the speech problems that Paul had, people were saved under his ministry. In fact, he became the greatest missionary of all time. So he asked for ability. But look at the next thing he asked for. He asked for boldness. He says that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So Paul asked for courage to speak no matter what the consequences. Paul was human, and there were dire consequences when he preached the gospel of Christ. Go on and read, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and see all the things that Paul suffered for the cause of preaching Christ. I mean, the gospel that Paul preached caused dire consequences for him. I don't know what it would be like if, if I stood up here to preach and I'm thinking, you know, when I get done with this message, as soon as I get on the other side of that curtain, people are going to be throwing rocks at me. They're going to try to kick me out of this church for what I've just preached. But that happened to Paul. Every time he got up to preach, it was always, I wonder who's going to get me next but it never stopped him. So what Paul asked for, he says, boldness, give me the courage to preach. Let me preach, 
no matter what the persecution, no matter how men react to it, let me preach the gospel of Christ. Oh, but today we have preachers who are afraid of persecution, but much different persecution than what Paul is speaking of because the modern preacher needs to be diplomatic. He wants to be well-liked, and that means he doesn't want to set any of the liberal fingers off. And so he would much rather, he would much rather say to his congregation, smile, God loves you. Put that smiley sticker on your head. He'd much rather preach that than to say, unless ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. But that's the way that Paul preached. So preachers today will get up and, oh, let's give a homily on global warming. Let's uh, see what we're going to do about spotted owls. And they won't preach, He that believeth not the Son shall not see light, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Paul asked for boldness as he preached. You know, the preachers today suffer under uh, Isaiah's condemnation. Isaiah said, His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant, they are all dumb dogs, they cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Not Paul. Paul asked for boldness to preach without intimidation, to preach without qualification. It doesn't matter who you are, who's listening to what he has to say. He goes on and he preaches. Now, here's the thing about the gospel of Christ. Sometimes it hurts people. Really, sometimes it hurts people. And and the way that Paul delivered the message, I'm going to hurt you as much as I possibly can until you realize you haven't seen anything yet. Far better to hurt someone with the truth of the gospel than to see that person die and go into a devil's hell. So Paul was willing to preach, and he asked for boldness. Now, this last thing that Paul asked for here is correctness. He says, For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly. And then he says, As I ought to speak. You know, a minister of the gospel has a frightening responsibility. The Bible teaches that we are going to be held accountable for everything that we say behind this pulpit. God's listening. God hears what I have to say. And there is an awesome weight of responsibility on a man who stands up to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as we stand here, I am afraid to come to the pulpit unprepared. Sometimes I don't sound like I'm prepared, but I I am afraid to come to this pulpit unprepared. I don't ask for anybody's sympathy over it. I mean, uh, maybe you don't understand what it takes to prepare a message, but I am not going to come unprepared because I know that God is going to hold me accountable. And I believe this is the way that Paul looked at it as well. He was going to be prepared when he preached the gospel of Christ. And he said, pray for me that I will speak rightly, that the word that I give, this is what the people need to hear, and it is, in fact, the word of God. He says, I want to be correct because I understand the consequences of what I do. And so he asked for correctness, to speak as I ought to speak. And I think that it means to speak forcefully, but to speak in love. It means to rebuke emphatically, but to preach with compassion and care and concern, to preach confidently, but never to preach arrogantly. Solomon wrote, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. And that's what a preacher really needs. He needs to preach fitly or correctly. Sometimes the Holy Spirit takes that word and the word becomes very convicting to people and people squirm under the preaching of the word of God. But then he takes that word and he actually makes it precious to the hearer 
And the Bible says it will yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So here's what Paul asked them for. Essentially, you see it right there in the outline, the ABCs of good preaching. Ability, boldness, and correctness. Well, this is a wonderful way that Paul closes out this this particular portion of Scripture as he speaks about Christian warfare. Each piece put on with prayer. So Paul begins the book of Ephesians by really just taking us and allowing us to soar into the heights of heaven with God. You read that first chapter, and the majesty of God is laid out before you. The glory of God and all that he's done is laid out. And you soar right up there at the Apostle Paul, and you think about those wonderful things, the heights of God's greatness. But you come down to the end of the book, and what do we find Paul doing? Driving us right down to our knees again before that holy God. It's a great way to end this book. We have one more message to preach, but a great way to end this section. Peter's words put a nice finishing touch on what Paul says. He said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Thank the Lord that we're able to go to him in prayer and bow before him, and then God will exalt us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we are just so thankful that we can come to you in prayer, that we can talk to you. The great God of this universe listens. You hear every word that we have to say. Lord, we just pray that you might bless your people tonight with this message. Strengthen us according to your will and to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.